Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. As we continue our look at Paul's letter to the Philippians, I'll read the text and then we'll ask for God's help and then dig in. This is verse 17 in Philippians chapter 3. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body or body of humiliation to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And it's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. So many of you know, maybe some of you don't, that I'm not a true Buckeye. I'm actually a Red Hawk. I'm a graduate of Miami University, a.k.a. J. Crew U. Now, because of that... Now, I, I, did, I did, I will admit, I owned not one but two roll neck sweaters when I was there. But, it, but in spite of that, I tried my best to stand apart. So I skateboarded to class. I had, if you know what I'm talking about, I commend you. I had these one-inch emo buttons, the pinback buttons that you could wear on your shirts and jackets. And I had them on there. Why? So that people would know that I listened to punk and hardcore. Because I couldn't just listen to it. I had, I had to let people know I listened to it. I wanted to be unique. But I remember going to a big music con- uh, uh, festival in Illinois called Cornerstone. And I saw thousands of Joe Hacks standing there. It was like a massive, giant mirror of, like, me. And it was hard, and it was a tough realization uh, that I was indeed an imitator. As much as I wanted to be unique. Why do we hate imitation? I think we hate imitation because we live in what philosophers call an age of expressive individualism. This unquestioned belief that we breathe like it's air. We don't even notice it. That one is truly alive, truly human when they express their individuality. And so in an expressive, individualistic age, imitation is the cardinal sin. But what if God made us imitators? Then I think we would stop fighting imitation and start paying closer attention to our role models. I look at it this way. Better to choose who you're imitating than to mindlessly imitate whoever or whatever. 
the Apostle Paul apparently has no problem admitting imitation. He is always inviting his readers, if you read his letters, he's always inviting the readers of his letters to imitate him as he imitates the Lord. And in our text this morning, he begins in verse 17 by saying, Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. He is, in other words, saying, church, choose your heroes wisely. Who are you patterning your life after? Who are you imitating? Paul doesn't have a false modesty. He simply says, insofar as I'm imitating Jesus, imitate me. He says, we should imitate him and others like him in this text. And so what does that mean practically for us? If we were to imitate Paul and other people like Paul, what would that look like? Well, he gives us some hints in the passage. It's a very personal passage. All of the letter of Philippians is incredibly personal. Do you see why now? He's sharing his story as an invitation to imitation. And in this text, we see at least three themes that if we were to follow Paul or imitate him and imitate people like him, these are things that would start to characterize us. And we'll take each in turn. The first is a cross-centeredness. People worth imitating are cross-saturated, cross-centered, cross-obsessed. Paul contrasts himself with enemies of the cross in verse 18. For many, he says, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So apparently there were leaders who said perhaps perfectly true things about the cross, but were walking as, did you catch that detail? Walking as an enemy of the cross. And he unpacks this phrase with four bullet points. And they are bullets. To be an enemy of the cross is to invite self-destruction. He says their end is destruction. So without the cross where Jesus is judged in place of you. Without the cross. uh, Your final destination is indeed judgment. Now, we can ignore that. We might pretend we're fine. But God's holy judgment either falls on you or falls on Jesus. There is no in-between. So an enemy of the cross is self-destructive. An enemy of the cross is one of self-empowerment. Paul says their God is their belly. Which is an interesting phrase, but if you think about it, what he's saying is without the cross, where our sinful desires are crucified. We would simply follow our desires like slaves. Our belly, our gut, our desires, our wants, our appetites would be our God. Zombies are lifeless. Because their God is their belly. 
Paul is saying without the cross, we are like zombies, simply following our desires. So an enemy of the cross is one of self-empowerment. An enemy of the cross is one of self-glorification. Paul says their glory is their shame. So without the cross, we would glory or boast in our accomplishments and not the accomplishments of Jesus. But Paul calls this pride shame. And then finally, he says their minds are set on earthly things, which I will call self-help. Self-help, in other words, without the cross, our mindset will only be plugged into the things of this natural earth or world. Paul uses this exact same phrase in the book, his letter to the Colossians, and he refers to it um, in reference to and right next to uh, man-made or human-made rules. Like, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. So without the cross, you are stuck In a cycle of self-help. No power and no change. And so you can say right things about the cross, but you can walk as an enemy of the cross. I grew up in a church that had a processional down the middle aisle. And I was often asked as a kid to carry the cross in that processional. And I identified myself with that cross. And even though I carried that cross, literally, I was, according to Paul, an enemy of that cross. Because I was in a stage of life where my heart was not made new by the Holy Spirit. I was in a stage of life where I was exalting my own ability, where I was hiding my failures from God and from others. I was in a stage of life where I was following my every desire. So we can say we are Christians, but we can also then walk as enemies of his cross at the same time. Luther called people like this theologians of glory. Theologians of glory. You thinking that doesn't sound bad. I I think I'd like to be a theologian of glory. That sounds awesome. Well, listen to what he means. It's a theologian of glory. First of all, he's implying that everybody is a theologian, which is true. There are trained theologians and everyday theologians. And most of us, including me, even though I went to seminary, I'm an everyday theologian, just like you are. We gather and form thoughts about God. That's what theology is. (laughs) And a theology or a theologian of glory is anybody who relies on self instead of the finished work of Jesus, especially his work on the cross. Listen to how Gerhard Forda writes about it. He says, theologians of glory operate on the assumption that what we need is optimistic encouragement. Some flattery, some positive thinking, and some support to build our self-esteem. Paul's saying something radical here. He's saying that is walking as an enemy of the cross. So what does it look like to walk as someone who's cross-centered? Well, we see Paul in his letter just saying it over and over again. I, I count all that I could boast in in my life and in my accomplishments rubbish. I count it as porta potty trash compared to the all-surpassing knowledge and glory of Jesus. That's one thing it means to boast in the cross. 
But if we just took these things that characterize enemies of the cross and flipped them, we get an even better, a better picture. Instead of our glory or our boast being our shame, the cross makes us right with God. Jesus endures the punishment you deserve. And his life of righteousness, it says in the Bible, is credited to all who lay hold of Jesus by faith. Which means, the cross of Christ is what makes you right with God. And nothing you can do, even your best efforts apart from the cross, is as the scriptures say, as good as filthy rags. But Jesus' righteousness is not filthy rags. And if it's credit to you, then the cross of Christ alone is what makes you right with cross. Uh, your boast, therefore, in the cross becomes not your shame, but your salvation. Only the cross leads to change. Instead of being belly led or appetite driven, we become spirit led. Because we can nail our desires that are against the will of God to the cross. We can crucify them because they have been killed on that cross. And only the cross makes you humble. Paul cries when talking about his enemies. Did you know? I think it is impossible to cry over your enemies unless you've been humbled by the cross. In verse 18 he says, I've often told you and now tell you even with tears. There's a humility that happens when you become cross-saturated. And so that's the first thing. If we were to imitate Paul or to imitate people like Paul, we would be cross-saturated. There's two other things I see in this text. And the second is this, hopeful. We would be hopeful. Paul writes in verses 20 through 21, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enabled him even to subject all things to himself. Now, everybody waits for something. Just like everybody imitates somebody, everybody waits for something. My boys illustrate this. Right now they are waiting for Florida. And after Florida, they will wait for Michigan. And after Michigan, they'll come up with something else to wait for. It's in our DNA. It happens with adults. You are waiting for a vacation. I know you all are. You are waiting for something, a break. You're waiting for a spouse. You're waiting for something. By nature, we wait for better things. What Paul models here is waiting on Jesus. That's what he models. Hope is not just waiting for better things, it's waiting for Jesus. Did you catch that? The way we describe hope is we're we're just hopeful that something will get better. It's a very vague wish in the dark, hoping for something better. The way Paul and the way the scriptures talk about hope is very specific and very sure and very certain. It's Jesus coming back. I mean, most of the things that we weigh on don't deliver anyway, right? The cruise makes you puke. (laughs) The marriage makes you miserable. The whatever doesn't follow through. But what happens when we wait on Jesus? 
two things. You would approach your life very differently. And you would approach your death very differently. Hopeful people approach life differently. Paul calls the Philippians citizens of heaven. Because Philippi was a Roman colony in Macedonia, this probably had some extra punch to it. Though they lived in Macedonia, though they lived in Philippi, they were citizens of Rome, which was far away. And so they were given the rules and the privileges of Roman citizenship, even though they lived far away from that city center. And so when Paul says, y'all are citizens of heaven, it would connect. There would be some traction with that thought. They would think, okay, my citizenship is not actually where I am, where I'm living right now. My identity the very, the, where, I call, where I get my, my sense of identity, where I get my sense of calling, where I get my sense of what's right and what's wrong. My privileges, they're all rooted somewhere else. And Paul says, namely, where God is, that's heaven. Where Jesus is, as we speak, that's heaven. It's closer than you think, heaven. Paul is saying the church is a colony of God's heavenly kingdom. We follow a different ruler. It means we have privileges like forgiveness. We have privileges that others don't have, like identity, like security. We approach, therefore, life very differently. And let me just ask briefly. Do your neighbors and friends and even family... Notice that you have a different citizenship. It's a searching question for me as well. Do they hear your accent, your kingdom accent? What would that look like for you? Our hope, I mean, we are called hope after all this church. Our hope changes the way that you live today. We could do a study, if we had the time, of all the ways in which the Apostle Paul roots his commands or roots his calls to action or roots his, his calls to, um, to do something or to say something in the return of Jesus. He is our king. He's returning. Therefore, we are kingdom citizens today. It also means, though, that we would approach death very differently than we do in America. Very differently. Hopeful people approach it differently. They approach not just death, but all the vestiges of death, like sickness and aging. All the frustrations and miseries of life is a vestige of death as well. And Paul says something, I think, very, very telling in this text. He says, our citizenship, in verse 20, is in heaven. And from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. I don't like that translation, personally speaking. Because it infers that God made icky bodies that are lowly. No, God made our bodies and said it is good. No, it is very good. He loves our bodies. He's going to redeem and restore and resurrect our bodies. What Paul is saying here is our bodies of humiliation 
Which implies that our glorious bodies are humiliated by sin and by death and by the fall. And what we are awaiting is God's return in Christ who will make that humiliation no more. Who is sick? Who is grieving death? That's humiliation and Jesus is coming to right that wrong. We can approach death differently. We can stop ignoring death and aging. We wouldn't be overly afraid of aging and death. In light of our hope. There's a third thing. People worth imitating are not just cross-centered or not just hopeful, but they're also steadfast. Or as Paul puts it in verse 1 of chapter 4, they stand firm. They stand firm and not just on their own. They stand firm in Jesus. Do you see it in verse 1? Stand firm thus in the Lord. In the Lord. So I will call that security in Christ. Or what I will call a spiritual ready stance. In my youth, I was taught two ready stances, two ways to stand firm. And the first was from basketball, and the second was from tennis. In basketball, you're taught a defensive stance. It's a ready stance. In tennis, which I'm better at, frankly, um, I gave up. Actually, I got cut from basketball in seventh grade. Who does that? Who does that? Right? What program cuts a seventh, seventh grader? Anyway, that was me. And immediately, me and my friend, Craig Robbins, I, I remember who it was. We were in the, in the boys' locker room, and we both looked at each other. We both got cut, and we both said, I guess we're tennis players. <laughs> and we were. Well, in tennis, you're given a ready stance as well. And what is a ready stance for? The ready stance is a, is a posture. It's a position to enable you to react without falling over. And Paul says, stand firm in the Lord. That is your spiritual ready stance. It enables you to react to whatever it is in your life and stand firm to not get knocked down. And you can only enter into this ready stance in Christ. You will fall over if you're standing on your own. As long as I'm in Christ, I'm speaking personally, I can get pushed around but not fall over. Oh man, as long as I'm in Christ, but when I am not resting in my identity in Christ, I will just fall like that. Being in Christ gives you thick skin. You know who you are in Him, and so you can stand firm. This spiritual ready stance also helps me love others better. Because I can enter into their life without getting completely absorbed into their struggle. I'm standing firm in Christ. And so I can enter into your struggle and not be so absorbed that I lose any of my identity. And I can speak loving words to them. Encouraging words and even confrontational words if necessary. Why? Because I'm in a spiritual ready stance in Christ. And I'll say thirdly, my spiritual ready stance enables me to be faithful when it costs. Sometimes cultures are friendly to citizens of heaven. You could say we have a dual citizenship. One that is anchored, one that is most true about you, your citizenship in heaven. And then one wherever you live. 
For the Philippians, it was Rome. Even though they lived in Philippi, they were Roman citizens. And there are cultures where our citizenship in heaven, where King Jesus rules, overlaps with your citizenship on earth in such a way that you can follow the Lord in good conscience and really not pay for it. But there are also cultures, and I would say probably most cultures across most of the world, where that overlap is either non-existent or very slim. And so there will always be push points. If you are not in your spiritual ready stand, standing firm in Christ, you will capitulate. You can stand firm in Him. And so Paul says, to summarize, imitate me and others like me who are cross-centered, hopeful, and steadfast in Christ. Who understand their union with Christ and live out of that. Imitate people like that. Who are those people in your life? Consider them as models. And instead of mindlessly imitating whoever, the talk show person you listen to, whoever, the books that you read, instead of mindlessly imitating whoever, consider imitating gospel people. And I'm going to take it one step further. Because if you think about it, Cross-centered, hopeful, secure in Christ is really the same way of saying focus on Christ. Which, of course, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, have this mind among yourselves. What is that? And he goes on to talk about Christ. Paul, in fact, says in verse 17 of chapter 3, he says, imitate by Focusing or setting your eyes on or concentrating on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Who is the perfect example? Well, it's Jesus. If you've ever been to an art museum, you've probably seen art students sitting in a room imitating or copying the great piece of art hanging on the wall. Have you ever seen that before? And they're just sitting there trying to paint like what it is that they're looking at. And oftentimes, you just wonder if they go in there every single day with their easel. They're just looking at it and they're standing in awe of the thing. They're standing in awe of it. And every day they see new things about it. And as they try to imitate it, they're like, oh my gosh, I'm nowhere near that. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That's what it means to imitate Christ. You look at him. You gaze at him. You you see him for all that he is. And you're like unbelievable. And then he calls you to follow him. And he is king. But he is also, as Paul says in this text, savior. Which means when you fall short, he's the only king that died for you. And that promises your restoration. Who says, I will raise your body of humiliation up no matter what. And so may we be a church that sits in awe of Jesus. That's what I want us to be. Like an artist in a gallery. And as we focus on him, we are changed. He says, Paul does in 2 Corinthians 3. And I'll end with this verse. He says, and we all, who with unveiled faces, referring to Moses, 
Moses, of course, saw the glory of God and had to veil his face. He's saying, we all who have the Spirit of God, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory. And as we contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that we would indeed be mindful of our imitating and that we could seek out models of cross-centered, hopeful, steadfast believers and leaders to imitate our lives after. And especially Paul as he imitates the Lord. And then especially the Lord. As we sit and wander and, and gaze at his beauty, would you change us from one degree to the next, ever increasing likeness and glory to him. And do that by your spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.